0: New York. I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, uh, before we get into what we've been drinking this week, I'm going to give us a word from our sponsor, which happens to be a tequila I love, Tequila Ocho. Uh, Tequila Ocho is the world's first single estate tequila, growing and harvesting only the very ripest agaves from their family-owned fields in the highlands of Jalisco, one field harvested for each of their annual vintages. Where some take shortcuts, Ocho is made in the old-fashioned way, And takes care to ensure maximum agave flavor in your glass. It's true, man. Like this tequila is like pure agave. Every expression is certified 100% additive free. Which is also interesting because I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of tequilas do have additives in them. And this underlies the purity and nobility of this magical tequila really is, man. Have you, have you had Ocho before? I, it's delicious. I have. Yeah, agreed. And, it's delicious. And <laughs> this
1: ad always, like these ones, this reminds me of how one of my, as of yet, great regrets in this industry is that I have never been to, well, I've never been to Mexico, period. But I've certainly never been to Jalisco or similarly to Oaxaca because I also am super interested in Mezcal. Like agave in general is this category of of spirit uh, that I understand like purely as a drinker on the end. And I, you know, I, I certainly one day hope to learn a little more about it in person. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's delicious. And, um, if it wasn't in the morning here in Seattle, I might well be drinking some.
0: Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. No, it's, 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 I've never been either. And I'd love to go. I've been to Mexico city, which is a, one of my most memorable vacations ever. Um, just like a really awesome place, but, uh, I've never been outside of Mexico city. I've actually never been like, even, you know, the, like sort of, stereotypical American like I've been to the beaches like I've never even been to the beaches Mm -hmm. in Mexico literally only been to Mexico City um but I would love to go to Alisco um I just I think it's like such a I mean the the history there in Oaxaca especially Oaxaca with the food um would just be a really really awesome thing to do um so speaking of food and drinks what are what are some food and drinks you've been enjoying over the last week I mean it was Thanksgiving last week so there had to be some crazy stuff you popped
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's funny, you know, like it's been a weird, uh, like sequence of kind of quasi or real holidays and sort of holidays. Uh, we, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for Thanksgiving, the the thing that my, we had a very small gathering. So, you know, like normally for me that weekend, um, I have a large family gathering on Saturday at my dad's house. And that's when kind of like a lot of like there's usually 15 or 20 people and a few people in my family besides me are pretty into wine. So that's kind of when we'll like, you know, bring out some interesting wines obviously it didn't happen this year. Uh, and, uh, and so for Thanksgiving itself, um, I, I am like, we, we haven't done a Thanksgiving wine podcast in a, in a while. Cause you know, we've done it before. You can go back and listen in the archives, but yeah, I, I'm like all about, I really only drink white wine on Thanksgiving. Those of you who listen regularly know this is true for most things. Uh, um, and my wife and I had brought back a magnum of, Old like 2003 Grand Cru Pinot Gris from Alsace a couple years ago. And so that's what we opened, uh, from Z And it was interesting, really uh quite good once it like we had to decant it because it was so closed off. Um, you know, this is a apparently a, the recurring theme where Zach decants wine. Yes, exactly. Um, but- that's what it sounds like right now. <laughs> but uh, but you know, that was uh that was one thing. And actually the the more interesting thing of late was um so uh was as we we're recording this yesterday was my wife's birthday, and uh I got her, um, we got a couple of, I mean, I got a number of things for her, but a couple of things in the beverage realm, uh, that we tasted last night. One was a 1985 Kupke, um, Kohita port. So a Tawny port, not a, not a vintage port, um, but from 85 and, uh, I, man, port is super cool. Uh, I (laughs) love, I, I love that stuff. I mean, I totally get why, even for us, like we had a, it's a 375, and we drank you know, each like a couple of ounces and like we will drink the last, the rest of it over the next few days. I get why it's not like, you know, the, the culture of like the British culture of like having port every night seems insane to me. Like, I don't really understand how people did that, Yeah, but it was different times. Um, They're not even doing it. It was that different times
0: anymore, it was very for sure. Events.
1: But, but like when you get a chance to have something like that, it's pretty cool. And, and something that is, you know, as old as my wife and older, almost as old as me is pretty cool. Uh, and then uh, coming back to something that you talked about on a on next round episode, I uh, got we got a bottle of uh, Jefferson's uh, Ocean Bourbon, uh, which is like aged at sea. And uh, I had never, I, you know, it's honestly true that sadly, I guess uh, I had never had it before. And and it wasn't until I listened and edited that episode that I was even aware that it existed. And so yeah. after that, I was like, oh, sure, put it on a boat, I'll go buy it. Uh, and so I did, and uh, it was delicious, and definitely like had. It was like briny bourbon. It was cool. I, I didn't know what to expect from it, but uh, but enjoyed it. So I guess thanks, Adam.
0: You're welcome. Yeah, I actually haven't tried it yet. I need to. Um, it's weird. I, ha- I have a bottle of it sitting on uh, on my bar, but I haven't opened it. And now when, when you sent me the picture of it, I was like, oh, that's like sort of maybe I'll you know open it this weekend and try a little taste of it. Yeah. Just because I- I'm super curious. Um I try not to have like a ton of bourbon bottles open at one time because I feel like I'll like <laughs> yeah. like go between them. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. but yeah, I'm, I'm super curious. So you made it, you made it, uh, you gave me like the encouragement I needed to maybe try it. Um, so I, what did, what did I drink? So basically around Thanksgiving I had a few wines, I really liked, I mean, I had obviously a, so a, a Kiriyani, uh, they had like a, a new xenomavro that's out on the market that i really liked um that was really delicious with thanksgiving and then i also had a a bottle of chardonnay from eden rift Hmm. that was really delicious their reserve chardonnay it was an absolutely amazing chardonnay and really great with uh the turkey that was um really surprising you know california chardonnay um but not like that sort of california chardonnay that we that maybe gets a bad rap if you know what I'm saying um it was really delicious yeah and then like after Thanksgiving I kind of took some time off uh so I didn't really drink like through the weekend um and then last night was you know our um our bubbly bash and so I had you know some sparkling wines and things like that the only other thing that I would say um that I had that was really amazing this week was was a few of the spirits that we tasted uh, on Wednesday on the roof of vine pair with like a few of us socially distanced um, for the top 50 spirits of the year list. But I'm not going to tell you what any of those spirits were as to not give away the list, which is publishing uh, on Tuesday. And this podcast comes out on Monday. So I don't want to do that. Um, But those were pretty amazing. I think that that list is going to be you know, um, just as interesting as our top 50 wines list or our top 50 beers list. So you should definitely check it out on Tuesday when it publishes. Cause I think, um, there's a lot of spirits on that list that are very well worth your time. If you are anyone who likes whiskeys, tequilas, bourbons, well, the bourbon is a whiskey gin, you know, it's, it's all there. And there were some really incredible spirits that we tasted this year. So some, some names, you know, some names you may not know. Um, so yeah, so I encourage everyone to, to check that list out on Tuesday. But yeah, and then this weekend, dude, I'm, I'm looking forward to like, I don't know, making good food and drinking some, some wines, maybe we're, we're, Tim and I are getting together on Sunday to do the annual champagne tasting. <laughs> so, uh, so that poor, should be fun. Poor guy. I know it's going to be tough. Uh, it was the only time we could find, right? Like that's, that's where, that's how COVID is like really upended all of this, right? Is, um you know, it, it's like this thing where you got to figure out how you can get together with someone to discuss because look, I understand on the part of the producers, like they still are only going to send you know, a bottle or two of each thing they're submitting for review, you know, consideration, et cetera. So I still have to somehow figure out how I have more than one or two people taste that. Yeah. And we're not going to do it inside, right? Because, you know, doing it indoors is not safe, right? Everyone's understands that. So then you got to figure out, okay, well then when is it? when can we get together outside and when can we get together outside when it's not supposed to be terrible weather. Right. So today was supposed to be that day. And you know, as of 30 minutes ago, the forecast is calling that it's supposed to start pouring at noon. Yeah. Right. So now it's like, okay, great. Well, if it's supposed to start pouring at noon, then we need to move it to a a different day. So Sunday now is clear, but going to be super cold out. So
1: perfect champagne weather. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously.
0: Adventures, adventures in like trying to do anything, which I think brings us to today's topic a little bit, which is, Look, I mean, we talked about this a bunch since COVID happened, um, but, you know, both you and I, when talking about the episode we went through today, felt like it was really important to have this conversation uh, one more time before the end of the year. And that is a conversation about, you know, restaurant relief. And look, I think the reason we want to have this conversation is twofold. One, um, you know, to articulate sort of what we've been hearing from the people we know in the industry, um, you know, and to share that with the people who are listening, uh, and also to really implore the people who are listening to to act. You know, especially if you live in a state that has uh Republican uh senators uh, because that's where we really see the sort of the bottleneck right now in terms of relief. Look, we still don't know even if the president will sign the bill, right? But if we can at least get the the Congress and Senate in the next week before they decide to leave for the holiday break to pass some relief, um I think it's more likely that the president signs it, right? Yeah. Um, but so let's talk about this, right? So, you know, it's hard times out there. Like everyone knows that, you know, dining in restaurants is not safe. The restaurateurs know that. And I think that's what's important that you and I chat about before we started this podcast, right? It's like our friends who own restaurants know that it's not safe to be open, right? And a lot of them don't want to be open, yeah, right? Like they don't want to get sick. They don't want their employees to get sick. They don't want, you know, their, they don't like to have to have indoor dining open, right? But they don't have any other choice, you know, like the government is not giving them any other choice.
1: Yeah.
0: And obviously also human beings are social animals, right? And so we obviously do want to go out. And so if a place is open, a lot of us are going to go because we, we, we just can't sit in our houses anymore, but you know we all have have read the news like it's gonna get bad in these next few months before it gets a lot better right the vaccine is coming we all know that now uh you know great britain has already approved pfizer's vaccine you know fauci says our standards are higher which i appreciate thank you fauci um but i think we're very close to approving the vaccine as well and that's only the first one but you know december january and february are gonna be really tough Mm-hmm. and there are some restaurants that have the luxury of being able to close. And those restaurants I I know a lot of people in the business are very envious of. Right? Whether they have, you know, financial backing or they've made a lot of money in the past and have saved really well or whatever. But most restaurants that's not how they they're run. Right? They're yeah. run on like the thinnest of margins and you know, a month of bad sales can tank the business. That's just the nature of a restaurant and so these places if they don't have relief are going to close and they're not going to close like their closure is not just a sad thing because you and I love restaurants right their closure is a sad thing because a lot of people are going to be out of work and it's going to be a much bigger you know issue for us to have to deal with in 2021 and 2022 in terms of how it's going to impact the economy than just that we lost some of the like the amazing you know wine lists and cocktail programs that we love.
1: And I think a couple of important things to add here. Yeah. So so the first is that it's also not just that you and I are sad about this because, oh, you know, we're going to lose out on the experiences we like to have. I mean, that's obviously part of it. And I think it's important to note that like, it's enough to say that having a diverse and interesting set of restaurants and bars in your city or town is is in and of itself a thing to want it's a thing to advocate for you know you can we can and will make arguments that are more you know i suppose quote unquote practical uh or pragmatic or economic based that that don't necessarily a- appeal to other sensibilities but i i want to say firmly that like wanting to have those things in your community is in and of itself enough reason to support these things it's the same reason why we you know why uh all kinds of other businesses that are being affected, like you know, the arts also need to be supported because like we don't want our society, at least I certainly don't want our, our society. I don't want Seattle, I don't want New York, I don't want wherever you are to be a place where there are no interesting things, you know where where our culture is even more homogenized. And corporatized than it already is, and I think that that is one of the things that has not been fully grappled with is that it's not like other situations. You know, we think about sometimes. I mean, I think about this a lot because I've worked in restaurants for a long time. Like, restaurants close all the time, right? And inevitably, a restaurant closes, and sooner or later, someone else comes along and says, "Hey, you know, I have a idea. I have a I have some money. I have a you know a concept, and I'm going to put it in this place." But we've never dealt with, you know. 30, 40, 50% more of restaurants closing or being so so um crippled by this this you know year plus of of the uh of pandemic and economic situation that that there are not going to be restaurants to replace many of these things. So we're looking at, you know, I walked through downtown Seattle uh not that long ago like a week ago and it's I mean it's empty because there's no one working down there or there aren't that many people. There's no one shopping down there. There's no one dining down there and that is the future for all of our cities for the foreseeable future because there are not going to be tenants to take back over those ground floor storefronts you know i mean this is again a broader conversation than just restaurants but restaurants are a huge part of that restaurants and bars are a big part of what make our cities places that people want to be you know right. and and so i just would say that the first and foremost you're you're totally right that there just are not restaurants are not and bars are not prepared to to they don't have deep pockets for, with few exceptions. And the other piece of this that's that's important is is remembering that we don't only just need uh, support so that you know people can continue to get uh, through this period of time, so that pe- that restaurant you know owners can be solvent. But we also need you know as you mentioned, there's an employment crisis in this industry, and and we are forcing people to make incredibly difficult choices about. What they do, right? You know, I'm incredibly fortunate that I have. Um, you know, I I was laid off and did not have to, for a variety of reasons, including like doing this podcast. Thanks, Adam. Uh, that I did not have to immediately try and find one of the very few restaurant jobs in Seattle that would have put me in contact with people on a daily basis, on you know, money, you know, on a on a minute by minute basis. And endangered potentially my health and the health of those around me. Mm -hmm. And we are asking millions of people to still make that choice basically because, you know, not just because we want food and need food. Like I think, you know, that's something that we are obviously going to have to deal with. We're going to have to deal with during this period. But also because like, as you said, restaurateurs and owners, their options were give up, you know, close and say we are we're not doing this or unless you are well positioned for takeout and not everyone is you have to open up and even outdoor dining is still not perfectly safe especially for the people working who are in have much more contact than the average individual diner but it's also not safe for anyone and and that to me is like you know our inability as a country to just fully reckon with that and grapple with that and face that is is a big part of this and obviously you know i don't want to be too you know we're not you and i are not political commentators really but it's clear why a lot of this is and it's qu- clear that that you know the the opinions and the beliefs around covid and and what's safe and what's responsible and how we should behave you know are pretty clearly divided to some extent along partisan lines and so yeah you know if you like restaurants and you like bars and you are someone who you know votes republican you i mean those are two things that at this point seem irreconcilable to me because your party does not support these entities existing except at the large scale corporate level. And if that's what you want for the future of the restaurant industry in this country, then man, you're doing your job. Uh, But if it's not what you want, if you like going to your neighborhood bar, you like going to a restaurant that serves more than, you know, uh, food from frozen food from Cisco or whatever, like you need to think about what you're doing. And, and we as a country certainly do.
0: I know. I mean like, you know, the thing that really struck me last week, because I talked to a bunch of friends who own you know bars and restaurants around the country was this sort of mantra this this slogan that kept saying um close restaurants open open schools and like a lot of the people who i talked to were like do you think we want to be vilified like they don't want to like this they're not they don't want to be the villains here right they don't want like they all know that this is a problem and most of them you know are reading the news as well and are listening to the experts because they are trying very hard to keep their staffs safe. Right. And they are, you know, disinfecting as much as possible. You know, they are, I would argue that in some places, in some cases, right. Restaurants are extreme, like some of the cleanest places right now (laughs) they've ever been. Um, But they don't have a choice, right. There's, there's just not, you know, they either, either for, for a variety of reasons, right. They either have a landlord, that is unwilling to allow them to not pay rent for the next, uh, you know, five to six months if they have to close. Right. So that means like they, they risk like literally just having to walk away from a space that they've completely built out, right. That they've paid to build out. I mean, think about that as a listener, if if, that's, you know, if you don't own a business, right, you put money that you earned into the booths the, you know, the tables, the decorations, the high-end kitchen equipment in the back, the bar, all of that, if if you get evicted, the landlord landlord takes possession of, right? So it's like thinking about you moved into an apartment and instead of just bringing in your furniture, you also did full renovations, right? You bought a brand new fridge you bought a brand new, you know, stove, you wallpapered and like, look, some, some people maybe do that, but that's pretty rare for renters, right? We usually move into a rental unit and like we bring our furniture and if we get evicted, usually we still, some, a lot of people can get their shit out, right? So if you, all of a sudden you show up to your restaurant one day and the landlord is taking possession of it and there is a lock on the door, right? That's now theirs. So all that money that you put in to ensure that the vibe is exactly what, you know, your customers want and and what you're, to be fair, judged on, right, by all the restaurant reviewers, uh, you know, the, the the independent Yelp critics, all mm-hmm. of that, right? You lose. So they're being told by their landlord maybe that, that, that they don't care they want their rent paid. You may be told by vendors that they don't care they want their, you know, their bills paid. And if, you know you were to reopen in the next three to four months,' they're, you're going to be put uh, you know on some sort of payment plan, or you're, they're not going to deliver to you anymore, right So maybe you had an amazing vendor of wine, maybe, you know one of the distributors you worked with, or even you know produce, et cetera, saying like, look, we're not going to deliver because you couldn't pay your bills, even though that's not your fault right now. And then you also have employees that rely on you to be able to pay their own rent because they're also not getting you know any relief. So yeah. it's, it's like this, it's this really crazy system. And I think for a lot of us, especially who are listening to the podcast, who are lucky enough to have jobs where we've been able to work from home, you know, this is something that we, we have to try to understand better because it's not a choice thing. I was able to easily make the choice to say, as much as I love the vine pair office. And we had done the exact same thing I'm talking about where we had just renovated the office and we had moved in only two and a half months prior to the COVID lockdown. I can handle the entire staff working from home, right? I don't love being on Zoom meetings every day. Uh, It's not ideal, but I can handle it. I think if you're one of those people who listen to the podcast regularly, then you've also been able to do that. There's a lot of things about working from home you probably don't love either. There's a lot of things that you probably also do enjoy. But if you're if you're in a restaurant, there's no way <laughs> to work from home, right? Also, we don't allow it. Could you imagine the chef that's like, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm going to go work from home and do delivery from home, and all of a sudden the health department's like, uh, that's not okay, <laughs> right? So you know, it's 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 not something that anyone wants to be vilified for, and they all want to close. I mean, I think that interview that that I did with Ruffian two weeks ago. You know, you you hear them all talking about that, like they want to close. Like they just want support to do it there. That's why they're being so loud about it is they really want, you know, our elected officials to support them in the closure. They don't want to just have to close and take the risk themselves and potentially lose everything just because they know that that's for the good of society. And I think that's, what's so, so frustrating for me. And I think for you too, Zach is like everyone who I know that is in the restaurant and bar industry, like, They know this is for the good of all of us, for the health of all of us, for not only people that they love, but for the like, for everyone else. But like, we can't just leave them high and dry because they want to help. We have to help them too.
1: Well, and I think it's also the important to note that like, we also don't want to create a system where the people who are benefiting most are the ones who are being most irresponsible. You know, like one of the problems that we've seen a, a lot of places is that, the people who are being really diligent about protocols about safety about you know limiting capacity about uh, observing proper distancing are the ones who are you know like in the end restaurants are designed around being full you know bars are designed around being full and no one's business model is designed to be successful at 25% capacity even with takeout even with whatever else and so i think that and and it's the unscrupulous operators the ones who say you know what i'm i'm willing to risk a fine. I, I don't think it's or you know, whatever, I don't, I, I'm willing to pack people in. And, and as you said, at the top, like, you know, there's a lot of people who are willing to, you know, take the risk or ignore it or whatever so so for one again you're like it's it's a bad system that encourages that kind of behavior you know that's that's just not good governance you know we should that you know the the incentives should not be such that the people who are being most irresponsible are also the ones who are in some cases being more profitable but the other piece of this is and, and and you made the point and i just want to reiterate it is you know it's not as you said just that restaurateurs and and owners and operators are looking out for themselves but it is really true that for a lot of people they're because we no longer have unemployment support beyond whatever your state currently provides and because we don't have any other you know certainly in this country you know healthcare for almost everyone is for many people is connected to their employment and if you lose your health care uh it can be very hard to find care uh you know find a program uh Outside of your employer, in a lot of cases, you know it's not impossible these days, but it's still not easy in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. And so, yeah, you know, or, you know, restaurateurs and and businesses that that rely on people in being there in person have had to make the decision. You know, they've had to try and keep people on. I mean, and I think in some cases that's been really noble to try and keep people gainfully employed, because as you said, you know, people, you know, the people who work in restaurants have bills to pay too, uh, and they can't work from home for the most part, and and we also all want to you know we we've talked a bunch on this podcast and 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 in our next round episodes about how there have been you know we want to be able to have you know as consumers we want to be able to still get good food delivered to our door we want to be able to have cool drinks made for us and delivered to our door we want to enjoy these things and we want to enjoy them now when when the only way to safely enjoy them in most cases is at home but also you know i said we projecting forward and the last piece of this that i think is important and, and has only sort of been discussed as as a part of it and it kind of touches on something i was saying before is that you know not only is there an issue with keeping these places open now but the other reason why it's so important to keep them open in some fashion and solvent in fashion in a fashion now is that when we do get a vaccine or vaccines you know fully approved and and distributed and life can go back to something that looks like what it did before uh, covid came, those restaurants will will not be able to spring back to life just magically. Like – there's right. going to be a ton of costs involved there. You know, hiring people is expensive. Um, re, you know, rehiring or hiring new staff and training them is expensive. You know, lots and lots of places, you know, in an area that we talk about a lot. Like, I've been doing a bunch of interviews with wine directors around the country. And, you know, so many people ha- sold off so much of their inventory because one of the first mandates from from ownership, and probably rightly so, was like, look, we're not buying any more booze. So right. <laughs> you're, selling, you're selling exactly what we have on hand, whether that's uh, through retail channels, on premise if you're open in some capacity and so many of these places i mean it's funny to think about in some sense but it's also kind of sad like you know you were talking um uh to uh to james from you know he's like sold through most of his inventory and yep. like if you want to go back in that place in it in you know next summer or fall and enjoy a, a great wine list like Where's he getting the, th- the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to replace those wines? Like he's probably not sitting on that. So, so you know, it's like if you want those experiences back, we want to rush back and have the restaurant experiences that we all bar experiences that we've all dreamed of and missed. Like those places need to not just be technically open, but they need to have capital to go back out because the pro- otherwise, where is all that? Where's all that going? Where's all that wine going? Where's all that beer going? Where's all that? Sp- where are all those spirits going? They're going to the huge corporate players that are that are already lined up, you know, whether they're existing restaurant, you know, conglomerates or they're, you know, sort of the uh, the I think they're so called the, the vulture capital firms and stuff like that. Like people are going to go to restaurants. We all know this. Like as soon as yeah. it's possible. And the question is, are you are we all going to be going to restaurants that are owned by people who actually live in our communities, who who operate one or a few restaurants, or are they going to be owned by? you know, massive national chains that whether they are operating under brand names that we recognize or just have bought up a ton of distressed properties and are operating these, like, you know, this is going to fundamentally change a lot about restaurants and bars and, and that is maybe let's say neutral at this point, but it, it doesn't take a lot for it to go bad. And I'm deeply concerned that, you know, the the owner operator is gonna be a thing of the past in a lot of places or very rare because Opening restaurants is capital intensive and who's going to have the capital? It's going to be the people who have been, you know, just fine during all this.
0: So I mean, you know, look, all this is to say if you if you've if you made it through the last, you know, 20 minutes with us, please this week, please reach out to your elected officials. Write them a note, you know, you can find their emails easily. You don't have to call, although calling is great and just say, "Hi, I'm your conti- cons- constituent and I'm asking you to pass covid relief right i mean that's what is it is sitting right now in congress you know there is negotiations ongoing and i'm asking you to pass this relief before you leave for the holidays right i just am asking you to pass coronavirus relief before you leave for the holidays please it's not what you know it's it's not as much as we need but it's a start right it's around 900 billion dollars we need trillions but this is billions, but it's it's a start, right, so please call and just say, "I'm asking you to support coronavirus relief and and we would we would very much appreciate it and with that zach you know i'll I'll be back next week we'll talk you know a lot about. Uh, tequila and, and other really fun things, but you know we felt like this was with with this being one one more week left to go before really a lot of the elected officials are going to leave and really only come back for a true lame duck session before uh, you know the new administration comes into office. We felt like it was really important to sort of put out this podcast and um, and really you know remind everyone that you know elected leaders work for us. And you know the the best way to remind them they work for us is to contact them. So please do that. Absolutely. And Zach, I'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Winsley. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Tequila Ocho is the world's first single estate tequila, growing and harvesting only the very ripest agaves from their family-owned fields in the highlands of Jalisco, one field harvested for each of their annual vintages. Where some take shortcuts, Ocho is made in the old-fashioned way and takes care to ensure maximum agave flavor in your glass. Every expression is certified 100% additive free. And this underlies the purity and nobility of this magical tequila.